Please do join me once again in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm chapter 59. I think we started this summer uh, with Psalm 54, and uh, we'll go through the month of, uh, finish up July and go through August before, I think, starting a new series from the Gospel according to Luke. Are you familiar with Psalm 59? If so, how familiar? Um, I mean, it's not Psalm 23, it's not Psalm 100, it's not Psalm 51, it's not Psalm 32, it's not Psalm 119, Psalm 59. I mean, really, who of you recently went to Psalm 59? If if you did read it recently, um, how familiar are you with it? Psalm 59. If it wasn't in the Bible, what would be missing? If Psalm 59 wasn't in the scriptures, what would we be missing? Now, some parts of the Bible, of course, are more familiar than others, understandable. But in view that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable or useful, And in view of the word of God being living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In view of that, by God's grace, we will see Psalm 59 being profitable, being useful. Now, why was Psalm 59 written? Why is it included in the canon of scripture. Here's a good answer. Paul writes to the church in Rome these words, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Well, with that in view, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, our heavenly Father, we thank you that Psalm 51 is here in your scriptures, your word in the Bible. Father, we thank you that it was written, written for our instruction, written so that we could endure and be encouraged so that we would have hope. Oh, Father, be pleased to use your word through your spirit in the lives of your people, not only for the next few minutes, but for the rest of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've already heard a little bit of the historical background of Psalm 59. If you go back to 1 Samuel 19, I just want to read one verse that was already written. Verse 11, 1 Samuel 19, 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. To watch him so that he might kill him. This concerns the occasion, indeed, when Saul's men watched the house in which David was, for all intents and purposes, a prisoner in his own house. He was trapped for the sole purpose not of watching and observing just for that 
information gathering, no, to kill him. But we saw or we heard that David escaped through an upper window of his house, aided by Saul's daughter, interestingly, his wife, Michal. Imagine being surrounded in your own house by enemies. What kind of psalm is this? Well, it's a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of confidence. Like we heard last week, at times it'll appear as a psalm of imprecation, uh, curses, asking God to, to destroy enemies. In this psalm is a typical pattern, a crisis, there's a conflict, and there's a, a movement from a cry to confidence. Even though this follows a typical pattern, we'll see it's distinct in its details. Well, I think we've all heard of an advertisement, an announcement about a night of prayer and praise, right? A church is going to have a night of prayer and praise, and it's a way of saying a concert uh, a lot of time. Notice prayer and praise. It's not an either or. It's a a both and. and. And we see this prayer and praise in Psalm 59. Again, you've heard it before, but I think it's worth repeating uh, at least one more time. Uh, In his commentary on the Psalms, in the introduction, John Calvin wrote these words, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. In a word, whatever may serve to encourage us when we are about to pray to God is taught in this book. There is no other book in which we are more perfectly taught the right manner of praising God. So the Psalms are a great help to all of us in both praying, that is asking from God, as well as praising, that is giving to God. The Psalms are an anatomy of the soul. They they open us up so we can see what's on the inside. But not only do they open us up, but we've been seeing that they're also medicine for the souls. They close us up. They help us heal. The Psalms give us words to speak when we desire both to pray, to pray to God as well as to praise Him. The Psalms give us language to express ourselves to God. And we see that in Psalm 59. Here are a couple of common expressions. I know I've used them. I, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to say. Well, here's help in Psalm 59. Let's read Psalm 59, beginning with the title or the inscription. To the choir master, according to do not destroy a miktam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, 
for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down. O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Well, our approach to Psalm 59 for the next few minutes will be to unpack and explore the two stanzas, the two halves. The first stanza or half is a prayer for deliverance, and the second stanza or half is praise for deliverance. So let's begin with verses 1 through 10, prayer for deliverance, a petition. Notice in the first couple of verses, David makes it clear He's requesting rescue. You know, it's interesting in our reading in 1 Samuel 19, uh, we read of how David uh, beat up the Philistines, right? And they fled. So David is a soldier's soldier, right? And yet here, he's begging God for rescue. Deliver me, protect me. And then God, if you didn't hear it the first time, I'll say it again, deliver me, save me. So I struggle with prayer. I bet you do too. You know, I think we have to think it's got to be complicated and long and filled with all the right words. How about these words, deliver me, protect me, deliver me, save me. Think y'all can pray? I think that one word prayer we talked about a few weeks ago, help. I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody, right? The Beatles didn't know who they were talking about. No, there's only one source of help. In the English Standard Version, it says protect me. In King James, it's defend me. But interestingly, in the New American Standard, it's set me securely on high away. In other words, really a good translation of this could be, be my fortress on high. Be my top security. When men rise up against me, God put me in a place that's untouchable. A high fortress. He requests rescue. But then he describes his danger. He describes his enemies, uh, verses 1 through 3 and 5. Uh, notice he speaks of my enemies, those who rise up against me, those who work evil. 
men who are bloodthirsty, fierce men who stir up strife against me. Not only did we read that, but a few moments ago we sang that. David appeals to God for rescue and he's going to give some reasons because I'm in a jam, God. I need your help and your assistance. But notice in verse 4 at the beginning, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. David here is making a declaration of innocence. He says there's no transgression or sin on my part, no fault of mine. Now, David is not claiming sinless perfection. I think that's a complete misreading of this verse. But he's claiming innocence as charged. In other words, he's not innocent of everything, but he's innocent of this particular thing. I remember years ago meeting with a well-known pastor in the country. Had, he was speaking at a conference or a training, and he and I got together for breakfast, and I I ended up asking him after, toward the end of our breakfast, a a question um, about how he deals with a particular criticism of his ministry. And his response was interesting. Oh, I'm a lot worse than that. Meaning that, you know, that's, yes, I'm probably guilty of that, but, but a lot more stuff. But David here is actually saying I'm, I'm innocent. I'm not guilty of what they are accusing me of. And I think all of us have been in those situations, right? I mean, we are guilty sinners, right? But sometimes people accuse us and there's no basis for the accusation. Our confession of faith in chapter 15 says this. Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of particular sins, particularly. Whatever the fault these men are accusing David of, primarily being a threat to Saul, he's innocent. That particular sin of being a threat to Saul, David has got clean hands. Now, If they were to accuse him of other stuff, maybe later accusing him, as Nathan did, guilty as charged. Notice he continues with a request for punishment. He uses language, awaken, rouse yourselves to punish those who treacherously plot evil. He's appealing to God as the judge who judges justly, as we thought about last week. And in verses 6 and 7, it's a negative refrain. We'll see it pretty much repeated later. But in verses 6 and 7, we see the image of dogs howling and prowling. Howling and prowling dogs. And notice, with swords in their lips. With swords in their lips. It's their words. We'll talk a moment about their lies, their false accusation. It's their words that are weapons. One of the earliest things I remember learning and having to unlearn 
was this, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Not true, right? We know it. Words hurt us. Words like weapons. And notice how verse 7 ends. Who, they think, will hear us? Who will hear us? That's a bit arrogant, isn't it? We can say all these things because nobody's going to hear us. What's the answer? Who will hear us? Well, none other than the Lord God Almighty will hear them. But this negative refrain in verses 6 and 7 is immediately followed by a positive refrain as this first section ends. Notice how verse 8 begins with a most important word in Scripture. What's that word? But. But. What does David say in the midst of this? But God is my strength. God is my fortress. He refers to God's steadfast love as a recent author has used these words to describe that covenant love, that faithful, unbreakable love that God has for his people as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. David is speaking of God being his strength, his fortress, and meeting him in his steadfast love. The steadfast love that Jeremiah would say in Lamentations is new every morning. Steadfast love, covenant love. And what does David say he will do as this first stanza ends? What does he say he will do? I will watch. I will watch for you. I will wait for you in this crisis, in this conflict, in this danger, in this despair, in this darkness. I will watch for you. Sometimes I think for me and probably for many of us, we don't find God as it were. We don't find him our strength, our fortress, We don't see him arrive in his steadfast love because we're not watching for him. I remember in the Navy that saying, you don't get what you expect, you get what you inspect. Why don't you take a moment today to inspect your life and and ask, how am I watching for God? How how can I deliberately fix my eyes, gaze on the Lord, watching and waiting? Well, David ends his prayer for deliverance with a commitment to watch for God and a confidence that God in his steadfast love will meet him. Well, now let's consider the outworking of this commitment and this confidence as we move into this second stanza, praise for deliverance, verses 11 through 17, where there's a confidence and assurance. And it really shows up, of course, at the end. Notice it starts off 
by asking, he starts off by asking God to give an example for Israel. We see that in verses 11 and 13. See, David most likely started the composition of this psalm at that instance when he was hiding, he had to escape, but later he becomes uh, king kind of publicly, even though he had already been anointed by Samuel to be king. And he probably adapts this song a little bit more to his kingly role. And he wants God to show up and act so that there can be an example for God's people to see, to see the Lord act so that they would know that the Lord does what he says he is going to do. Let's look at verse 12. Picks up on this lips as weapons and swords. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter. False accusations, slander, in, harmless or harmful. Remember last week we looked at Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Now, if we just had that and I asked you to take out a piece of paper and write down six things, no seven things that God hates that are an abomination to him, what would you include? Well, if you looked at Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, you would see that out of those seven, there is a lying tongue and a false witness who breathes out lies. Two out of the seven have to deal with speech. Lies, false witness who, who breathes out lies. You see, lies cause mobs to appear. And mobs end up doing great violence to people, right? If I were to walk down the street of Bellevue and somebody should say, hey, he just robbed the bank, okay? False accusation, hopefully. I didn't rob the bank. But you guarantee the police would be after me. Other people may be after me. All based on a lie. My friends, do not underestimate the damage a lie can do, a false accusation can do. We see it in our culture today, the power of lies. He also speaks of pride expressed in speech. Notice, let them be trapped in their pride. Well, how does pride make itself known? How does pride make itself known? I, would, I think pride makes itself known in what we say, in what we talk about, right? I am better than you. You are not as good as me. I have more. You have less. I am this. I am that. You see the relationship between speech and pride? Sure, it's in the heart and then it's expressed in the speech, but do you see how we wouldn't even know somebody is prideful unless they spoke? And David is drawing attention to that. 
Think with me for how Paul counsels the church in his letters. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You used to speak falsehood, now speak truth. He continues, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. He writes to the church in Colossae, let your speech always be gracious. Now, who are David's enemies here? It's not the Gentiles, it's God's people acting like Gentiles, acting like they don't know God. Was their speech howling like dogs, prowling around like dogs? Was it gracious? Was it building up? Was it strengthening? No. And not only that, they were born out of lies, falsehood. And we move into a negative refrain in verses 14 through 15. Again, the image of howling and prowling dogs wandering around. But that's quickly followed by another positive refrain. And again, this refrain begins with that all-important word, but. And when we see that in this psalm, it's like, God, the crisis is going on, and here's how I feel, and this is what I'm afraid of, but, but. He's going to turn his eyes to the Lord. He's going to trust in the Lord. He says again, God is my strength, my fortress. And not only does he say steadfast love again, he even repeats it again. Who says that the Old Testament God is not a God of love? What a false understanding of God's word. The God, the Lord, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. Earlier, David said, this is what I will do, I'll watch. And now what does he say? I will sing, I will no longer be silent. It's a movement from I will watch to I will sing, I will wait, and now I will act. And interestingly, the action is not taking matters into his own hands, not loading up four swords, a couple of shields, jumping out the window and doing battle against fleshly enemies. No, he's going to battle singing God's praises. You remember when we went through Acts and was it Peter and John were in jail and they were singing? It was a difficult circumstance. They were singing. That's why singing as a church is so important. So very important. And again, I will say, I travel around here and there. And in this little church, in this little place, I have never heard better singing. Once again, we see in Psalm 59 that the Psalms give us language for prayer to God, both petitions and praises. Let's now return as we wrap up to the question that was asked at the beginning. But, but before that, let's consider how the imagery of this psalm helps us to grasp the truth of this psalm. You see, in the thick of trouble, 
God brought a song to David. See, the dogs were howling and the dogs were prowling, but David was singing. He was singing in the fortress of the steadfast love of God. What's going on in your life today? Are you singing? Are, are, do you feel that the circumstances are overwhelming you or do you feel at the moment that even though the circumstances are tough, I'm able to sing because there is a fortress of steadfast love. That's where I'm at. The image is of the night of danger but the morning of deliverance. So back to the question, what would be missing without Psalm 59 historically? What would be missing? Well, what is it? It's a song of God's deliverance of David, right? David is delivered. He is saved. He is not killed. What would we be missing? If Psalm 59 weren't here, we would be missing Jesus, the son of of David, David's greater son. Check out the genealogies of Matthew and Luke. The son of David. The son of David. The Messiah. What would be missing theologically if we didn't have Psalm 59? Well, we live in the tension between the already and the not yet, the first advent of Jesus and his return. And where are we? We're like in our house, surrounded by enemies, but we're also in Christ, in the covenant God, our fortress. Charles Spurgeon, the well-known English Baptist preacher of the 19th century, said this of this psalm. Had David never been cruelly hunted by Saul, Israel and the church of God in after ages would have missed this song. The music of the sanctuary is in no small degree indebted to the trials of the saints. Affliction is the tuner of the harps of sanctified songsters. What can Christians in all circumstances sing? The Psalms. Is there a missing song in your life? In my life? My friends, for Jesus, the Son, the steadfast love of God, his Father, was his fortress. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was surrounded on all sides by enemies. The religious leaders, the political leaders, and his own disciples who betrayed and abandoned him. But because his father was his fortress of steadfast love, he was safe and secure. And for us, for those of us who trust in Jesus, not just once a long time ago, but right here, right now. For those of us who trust in Jesus, the steadfast love of God in Christ is our fortress. You've heard it before, but this is where we'll end. Who shall separate us from the love of God? 
in Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, indeed, a mighty fortress is the steadfast love of God. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Psalm 59. We thank you for all of your word, your word which convicts us of our sin, comforts us in our forgiveness, and calls us to lead a life of obedience and discipleship as we follow Jesus. Oh, Father, help us in these days to be able to both pray to you and praise you. Father, help us to cry out to you in the danger and rest in the confidence that indeed nothing will be able to separate the love that you have for us in Christ. Oh, Father, help us to run away from ourselves and our abilities and run to the fortress that is your steadfast love. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.